Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company here at my panel, we've got Peter Whittle, who's the director of the New Culture Forum. Piers Ben, who's a philosopher, and Jonathan Steele, an international affairs journalist. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co. by now. It's not just about us here. No, it is not. It is about you at home as well and your thoughts. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, uh, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, all the best bits are there. You can watch us live, watch us back. We've got an app and we are on the radio as well. DAB Plus, wherever you are watching or listening. Good evening to you. You're very, very welcome. Now, our top story, Boris Johnson has announced that Britain will send an additional £100 million worth of weapons for Ukraine. It comes after dozens of people, including children, died when a crowded railway station in eastern Ukraine was hit by rockets. Boris Johnson was speaking at a Downing Street press conference earlier this afternoon with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Let's listen. Today I can announce that the UK will send a further £100 million worth of high-grade military equipment to Ukraine's armed forces, including more Starstreak anti-aircraft missiles, which fly at three times the speed of sound, another 800 anti-tank missiles, and precision munitions capable of lingering in the sky until directed to their target. Now, at that press conference, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that his country was working hard to end the reliance on Russian gas imports, but he also added that it wasn't feasible for Germany to replace Russian gas immediately. We're not going to import coal anymore, and uh, I'd like to use this op opportunity to clearly state Germany is already starting to wean off its dependence, and uh, we're diversifying um, our sources. We are investing large-scale in order to establish the technical and physical infrastructure that are necessary in order to import gas via no the northern German shores. Hmm, now, you know, we've got a war in Europe, we've got NATO considering how they're getting involved and Germany doing their best but having some of their hands tied because of a dependency on Russian oil and gas. Who could have foresaw that coming? Donald Trump, of course. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia because they were getting from 60 to 70 percent of their energy from Russia and a new pipeline. And you tell me if that's appropriate, because I think it's not. And I think it's a very bad thing for NATO, and I don't think it should have happened. Ah, you got to say, whatever you think of Donald Trump, he spoke a lot of sense there. Uh, Jonathan Steele, I mean, there is so much to unpick uh, on the latest goings-on in Ukraine. I mean, where do we even begin? We've got more and more uh, money, more and more weapons, more and more conversation about weaning ourselves, well, not ourselves, Germany, more to the point, off Russian oil and gas. And, you know, you've got Finland, for example, talking about submitting um, a membership, uh, requesting membership to NATO imminently, if not by the end of May. Russia have turned around and said that will be the end or they will destroy Finland if that happens. Do you think uh, peace in Europe? 
Is that the end of it for now? Well, it is certainly very far away, but I wish there would be more talk about it. And I'm glad you're talking about it here tonight because Olaf Scholz is one of the few people who can talk to Putin and to Biden, of course, and so is the French president. We, sh we want these peace talks to succeed. We want a ceasefire. The best way to stop this killing is to have a ceasefire on both sides. And it, it seemed at one time that the gap between the two Ukraine and Russia on talks wasn't that big. Ukraine was saying we're willing to give up the ambition to join NATO. We'll be neutral instead. That's very much in line with what Putin has been saying. He's also talked about putting, kicking into touch, if you like, the so sovereignty issues over Crimea and eastern Ukraine, saying we can talk about that sometime during the next 15 years. So actually the gap is quite narrow. And I think it would be much better if people like Boris Johnson and Joe Biden would talk much more about peace and encourage the French and German presidents to really get the two sides talking to each other, or if not by through mediation, to find out what the real differences between them are, which could be uh, bridged. Yeah, Piers, I mean, it is the talk seems to be continually on more weapons, more mm. weapons, mm. which in my mind, granted and admittedly as a non-foreign conflict expert nonetheless, but to me, you're pumping weapons in, you're just extending, elongating the situation. I don't understand why more and more people are not focused on uh, organising peace talks. Why isn't the objective, the loud objective, Zelensky, Putin, in a room together to try and fix this? Well, it looks as though, it looks as though Emmanuel Macron has been talking to Putin for quite a long time, quite regularly. Presumably, he's trying to broker some sort of, uh, well, some, some way of getting Putin to see sense. Uh, but the trouble with uh, peace talks is we all want peace. Uh, we're in a very, very dangerous situation. This is unprecedented in my lifetime. You know, I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I imagine that's the closest we got to it. But we, ha we are dealing with a, an extremely dangerous man in Vladimir Putin, and he's not going to give anything up unless he has to. So, yes, let's all do, let's do all we can to stop things escalating, but let's also do what we can to rescue the Ukrainians from the ghastly situation that they're in. And uh, Putin's not going to be talked out of that. He has to be forced or threatened. Now, I don't know whether he can be, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a done deal at all, unfortunately, that Ukraine is going to win this war. Uh, they might win it in parts and not in other parts. It's a very dangerous situation. But, uh, yes, of course, peace, but you have to negotiate from strength, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Peter, do you think the UK is doing enough? Did you see this kind of press conference today? Yet more yes. money, yet more weapons, yet more sanctions? Yes, I mean, I, I have been very impressed by... Britain's response up till now, and, and indeed remains so. I was pleased to hear what Boris Johnson said today. I think that it shouldn't be... I mean, he sort of slightly framed it as though it was in response to the atrocities we've seen. Um, I think it should be ongoing. Um, I think it should intensify. Um, I don't... I'm, when it comes to peace talks, fine. Who is not going to agree to peace talks? Um, you know, of course. But the fact is that the war as I can see it in Ukraine, is in fact entering a very important stage, a crucial stage. So we have got to do everything we can to help the Ukrainians hold the line. The only other thing I would say, by the way, is that the idea of peace talk and, a kind, and also some kind of, um, you know, compromise, or whatever that might be, I think that when the Ukrainians see what the Russians have done during this war, they're less likely to feel like compromising, actually. Mm. And I think that we should be with them on that. 
Um, and Jonathan, you know, we had the news yesterday, I think it was, that Russia have now been kicked off the UN Human Rights Council. How significant is that? Is it relevant? Will it make any difference? Will Putin care in your mind? Well, I think it's significant psychologically because it's a blow to Russia's international image. So many countries have voted first to condemn the invasion and secondly now to kick them off the UN Human Rights Council. But uh, it won't change Putin's mind. I mean, sanctions are much more likely to change his mind than this kind of thing, which is more symbolic than, than substantive. Yeah, and I mean, we say that sanctions pays are, are likely to, to change his mind, but he doesn't seem to be changing his mind that much at all. Well, we have to ask what the purpose of sanctions actually is. I mean, one idea that's, a, that's been touted is that you make the Russian people suffer from these sanctions so that eventually they'll turn against their glorious leader. The evidence I'm aware of seems to be that Putin is, in fact, popular in Russia and that if ordinary people are hurt by sanctions, they will see themselves and their regime as victimised and will support the regime even more. Yes. That, that leads to one great danger. Mm. The, other, the real point of sanctions must be to cripple the regime financially and as, as part of a war effort to stop them being able to use it on, on military uh, equipment and on soldiers and, and so all the things they need for their war machine. Uh, gas seems to be an effective way to do that for two reasons. One is that we need to wean ourselves off gas anyway, in my opinion, though I know that's not everyone agrees with that. Uh, the other is that it's, Russia is a major supplier of gas and that if there's a concerted and coordinated effort to cut uh, off Russian, to, to stop buying Russian gas, that could have an impact, if not on the morale, certainly on the capacity of the Russian regime. But I don't know whether it'd be effective. It's just one idea among many that is being touted. Uh, Peter, Clive mm. just emailed in now saying, and I'll quote directly, Michelle, I'm not saying we shouldn't help countries or the people within them, but he asks, why can we always find the money to help them out over and over again when we have many of our own people living in poverty? Well, I, in a way, you should be able to do both, I would say to, to that gentleman. Um, I, I don't think... It's a slightly false dichotomy, in, in a way. Um, but I think that the situation here, for me, is, is quite cut and dried, you know, actually. Um, and a What country, do you mean by that? Well, a country has been the victim of an aggressor. Um, no one, I think, doubts that. I mean, or at least there are some people, who, of course, who doubt it, but, I mean, they're on the, on the fringes, if you like. And it, you know, it behoves us to actually help. Um, and I think we have done that well. And when you look at, for example, and hear about, on an anecdotal basis, um, the stories of Ukrainians fighting, how pleased and grateful they are to Britain for helping. Um, that is very good to hear. It's very good. But I think we should absolutely keep that up. Um, and I think that there are other things where you could get money to help poor people here, in, in answer to your caller there. I think that there are many other ways one uh, could get money to help people, um, which, you know, come from different sources, different sources of waste, if you like. Yeah, and Jonathan, I mean, all of this is kind of your area of expertise. Um, Peter just saying, you know, this is a very cut and dry, very, you know, simple kind of uh, simple situation, if you like, very clear cut. Uh, do you agree with that? Well, no, it's not at all clear cut. I think it's very complex and there are many different tendencies pushing in different directions. But I, I come back to my first point, which is the main thing is to stop the fighting. And that's not going to be done by putting pressure entirely on Putin. It means getting the peace talks going and finding what the real differences between them are. 
I mean, obviously, morally and psychologically, one feels one wants to help these people, but one also has to draw and keep in mind, are we escalating simply? Are we just prolonging the war? Will we make it more of a kind of uh, stalemate, which both sides keep increasing their aggression on each other? I mean, not aggression by Ukraine, but their attacks on the Russian forces and uh, not ending the war at all. End the war is the crucial thing, because already a quarter of Ukraine's population is living outside their, either their country or their home altogether as homeless people. And more cities are going to be destroyed. There won't be anything to go back to for the refugees if and when the war does stop, if we go on escalating all the time and just keep the fighting at the boiling point. Yes, but can I, can I, sorry, can I just come back to that? So, yes... You say that the main thing is to stop the fighting. Yes, that is true, but uh, at what cost? You you can't just sort of... When you say uh, stop the fighting, yes, we all want to stop the fighting. It's it's a, a very, you know, admirable sentiment. But, you know, at what cost and to whom? You know? I mean, you, you know, you can't... What would you accept if it meant stopping the fighting? What would you well, accept? Well, I could ask the same question to you. What does it mean? At what cost to go on escalating, oh, sending more uh, weapons? No, I would say, when, why is it called esca I, I, escalating? I, I, why is it called escalating when uh, the Ukrainians, seems to me, have shown such extraordinary courage and resilience, right? And it seems to be unfailing. So we should support them in that. Well, I think there's, there's always been a moral argument for not fighting a war if you know you can't win it. Uh, a very difficult argument to swallow, actually, because it's part of just war tradition going back centuries. Uh, because if you fight a war you can't win, then you're just, uh, there's going to be a cost of lives. But there's also a principle of resisting aggression. And you can always end the war by, by just not fighting. Uh, and then the result is that you are then dominated by the person you're... Well, of course, that's not with. even an option. Well, well, I agree. I'm saying you can do I mean, what, do, well, you Should we just have put down arms in 1940 or whatever? That's or... just my point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you, I, wouldn't, I worry slightly, I've got to say, about uh, the whole kind of Finland ambitions to join NATO and what, what the implications and ramifications of that will be. Uh, right, just going to return, uh, just pack Ukraine for now and just talk about the goings-on in this country. Uh, I'll show you a couple of front pages this morning. Uh, for those of you that are listening, not watching, I'm holding up the Times new newspaper. The headline there is Sunak fears revelations of a wife or a hit job. Uh, I'm going to hold up the Telegraph now. Uh, Sunak allies claim number 10 is undermining the Chancellor. Now, it makes me chuckle. Uh, sorry, I held out so fast, and just as you were zooming in, I whipped it away from you. But anyway, I've read it out, so you get the gist. Uh, now, the reason it makes me chuckle is because things have uh, kind of escalated since those headlines were produced. And now Rishi Sunak is under fire again uh, this evening, this time after admitting holding a US green card uh, whilst he was the UK Chancellor. The green card, uh, of course, allows permanent residence in the USA. Rishi Sunak said it's because he's lived and worked in America. And again, he accuses his critics of running a smear campaign against his family. Uh, Pierce, has he done anything wrong in your mind? In having a green card? Well, no, in being the chancellor. <laughs> in being the chancellor, yeah. I mean, anyone could... Well, not anyone, yeah. but green cards are green um, cards. Uh, this specifically is about being the chancellor of the UK while simultaneously holding a US green card. Yeah, well, I, that's what I understood your question to be. I mean, I suppose, you know, what is the problem supposed to be about having a green card? A green card, as I understand it, uh, allows you uh, residence, uh, permanent residence, or at least very... Uh, a long period of residence in the United States, and they're very hard to get, and they're much, they're much coveted. I suppose there might be suspicion that 
uh, Sunak is thinking of fleeing to the United States for some reason eventually, or that he wants to, he's not committed to this country. Maybe that's to worry about it. But I haven't yet been told why it's a problem in itself. I mean, we could always ask why he wants a green card, why he wanted one. You know, why does he have a green card? That's, it might be worth asking about Well, he that. used to live and work there, didn't yeah. he? So that's kind of, he used to have a business there. Yeah. That's kind of where the origins of all this came yeah. from. Yeah. Um, just to kind of give some dates to this, by the way, in case you're wondering, he was, of course, Rishi was elected uh, for the first time in 2015, and then he became the Chancellor in Feb 2020, and he held his green card until October 2021. Peter, your thoughts? I... I, I, you know, really with peers on this, I think this is a bit of kind of skullduggery that is being very effective, actually, um, whoever's got it, you know, in for him. It might actually well come from his own side. I mean, it might come from, you know, within the power base itself, people who don't like uh, the Chancellor. I, I'm just trying to work out quite what is so wrong about this. I mean, you know, I, uh, maybe I'm being terribly out of touch here, but if he had a green card, not only is it not against the law, but I mean, I can't, you know, so, in a way, so what? Did he have well, to... according to the Lib Dem leaders, uh, Ed Davey, he's oh. saying, how could the man responsible for UK tax policy regard any permanent residue status for the US as acceptable? He goes on to say this would be a huge conflict of interest and a serious breach of the ministerial code. Of course it's um, not. No, so... it's not. Jonathan, <laughs> this seems to me to be a little bit uh, fishy. I mean, people's nickname for Rishi used to be Dishy Rishi. It's now Fishy Rishi. <laughs> and to me, this smacks of a little bit, you know, he's saying it's a smear campaign. I agree with him. Don't forget, not that long ago, there was an almost kind of partial coup attempt against Boris Johnson over parties in his back garden. This all got distracted, of course, given the situation in Ukraine. But Rishi was regarded by many as the kind of front runner to take his place. And now we're seeing yesterday, of course, the non-dom stuff. Today we're seeing green card. You know, Lord only knows what it'll be tomorrow. Do you think this is kind of political uh, manoeuvring? I think it's undoubtedly political manoeuvring. But I think we have to be careful not to be confusing apples with oranges. I mean, it's one thing for his wife to t pay to have non-dom status to avoid paying tax in this country. That is uh, unconscionable. I think it's hypocritical and terrible indictment of uh, their values, the, the, he and his wife. What Whereas is... having a green card is, is nothing spe special with, wrong with that. I mean, there are a lot of people in this country who have double citizenship. They have US passports, which is more than a US green card, as well as having a British passport. And there are all kinds of tax arrangements to avoid double taxation, to avoid being taxed in both the US and Britain. So it, it, it's a recognised issue, the dual citizenship or green card. But it's, so I think the, the, there is a hit job going on to try and turn that into, a, into a something scandalous. But the other issue, the non-dom, really is serious. And it's right that people are going after him for that. Do you think? See, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm like missing the point, but I don't think either are serious. And I think that, you know, especially in this non-dom stuff, uh, Jonathan, it appears that no rules were broken. No rules were broken. And if people don't like the non-dom setup, that's absolutely legitimate. But then they could have changed the, the non-dom setup years ago. It's been in place for decades and decades, and it's it's spanned multiple governments of multiple uh, colours. So it all just seems a bit peculiar to me. Peter, you want to come in? Yes, I mean, I, I think it, it's a it's a rather sort of bad route to go down, actually. I mean, you know, in the sense that, for example, yesterday we had, you know, about his wife, who's... Everything is above board. There's nothing wrong there. Um, but 
when people start or opponents or those who are rivals start to pick on people's family, mm. um, you know, you go down a very dark route, not just financially, it could go over into their private behaviour in all of these things. And frankly, it shows that I would say that they haven't got many good political arguments against them. Well, yeah, actually, that's an interesting point because uh, who is it who's just emailed in? Sorry, my emails. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, ben has emailed in saying the opposition is so weak, mm. they're going to try anything mm. to get rid of uh, Boris. Sunak's uh, spokesperson said, by the way, um, in a nutshell, he's followed all the rules, didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he filed his US tax returns, but as a non-resident in compliance with the law, they go on to say that under US law, you are not presumed to be a US resident just by dint of holding a green card. Uh, let me know your thoughts about that, Giorgio said. I couldn't care less about him having a green card, Michelle. I see this as another smear uh, by the media. I've got to say, that sense is really coming through quite strongly. Uh, Carl has written in. I think this is an interesting point you raised here, Carl, saying, Michelle, who was in the wardrobe department at GB News yesterday? He looked like a QR code, and today he looked like a disco ball. Oh, Carl, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> I shall have a word with myself. It's me. I manage my own clothes, and it's Friday. So if you're listening, not watching, I've got a little bit of glitter going on. Why not? It's almost the weekend, that's what I say. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has ref refused to rule out another lockdown should Britain be hit by another COVID pandemic. He said the government has to get the balance right with prioritising public health and saving lives. Uh, Gotta say, he was speaking exclusively to GB News uh, with Esther McVeigh and Philip Davies. Uh, you can watch Esther McVeigh and Philip Davies' exclusive interview with Boris Johnson tomorrow morning. How exciting. This is during their uh, Saturday selection from 10am. I know where I'm going to be watching this. Let's, let's take a little look. Uh, I can't rule out something, Esther. I can't you know, say that we wouldn't be forced to do uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions again of the kind that we, we did. I think it would be irresponsible of any leader uh, you know, any, in any democracy to say that they're going to rule out something that could save life. Well, there you go. You can thank me later. I've just sorted out your uh, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock tomorrow. Just a reminder, that's that interview. Uh, let me start with you, Peter. Let's yeah. talk about lockdowns. Uh, Boris Johnson there basically saying that they, they should be on the table to be considered, should they? I think he's just, um, in, in an odd way, maybe not to take this too seriously in the sense that, you know, being a politician, he's not going to, uh, you know, take any hostages to fortune and he's not going to rule anything out. Um, it would be the vote loser, I think, uh, quite rightly, to, to end, you know, all vote losers if he did something like that. Really? Uh, yes, I think so. I think one of the problems with what happened with lockdown is that now it's been introduced as a possible answer or solution to any form of problem like this that might arise. Not just sort of like a, a, another COVID, but any other kind of, you know, very strong disease or any particular situation which, oh, well, we'll just simply lock down. People are now used to it. Um, I think that the damage that was done by lockdown was just incalculable. And I, 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 I use that advisedly, that word, because actually we still don't know and we won't actually know maybe um, for maybe another generation when it comes to children, first of all. Um, but what I would say is that uh, there was a report quite recently, I think it was about a month ago, um, for a North American report, uh, which basically said that lockdowns did not really make a significant difference in the end. And I think that 
you know, in terms of deaths and in terms of spreading. Yeah, I think COVID. you're talking about is it the John Hopkins? Uh, this is me it, off the top this, of my head. Exactly. So the John Hopkins uh, yeah. University that set out, they came out and said it actually the restrictions made something like 0.2 percent difference exactly. to death um, rates. However, Michelle, you could say in fact uh, it's not quite as simple as that. It could because there there are going to be things coming through uh, down the line as a result of lockdown, um, which show that maybe they were more destructive than even even that. Um, so I, I think it would be uh, an appalling prospect. And also, you know, we have to remember, like we need to, just how appalling it was for two years. Mm. And in terms of depression for people and... Of course. Well. But Jonathan Peter says that actually he thinks that this would be a vert loser for Boris Johnson if we were to ever go into lockdown again. But I would... I mean, certainly, I wouldn't ever... I wouldn't even actually follow a lockdown. I know I shouldn't admit that, but mm. I probably wouldn't. No. Um, but, nonetheless, there are lots of people that agree with lockdowns, that, that do think they're necessary and that they shouldn't be ruled out in the future. Your thoughts? Well, I'm one of those people. I'm afraid I won't be able to watch the interview tomorrow at 10 o'clock, so I'll be on the tennis court, I hope, if it's not raining. Well, luckily but, uh, for you, I, I Jonathan... I do agree with Boris uh, Johnson on this point, not to agree with him on many other points, but on this one, he's right. You don't want to rule things out uh, indefinitely in the future because we never know what's coming down the track. So to keep it as a last resort or on the table, whatever cliche you want to use, is a good thing, obviously, and I think... If people interpret his statements meaning he's keen on having a lockdown, then they're wrong for that. He doesn't want to have a lockdown unless it's absolutely necessary and advised by the medical authorities. Oh, yeah, but come on, when we say about advised by the medical authorities, I mean, when we look at some of the things like the predictions mm. that people like Sage made in terms of, you know, predictions of what cases look, could look like versus the actual reality of them, they were miles apart. And here's my concern with this. I don't know where you stand on lockdowns, but... For me personally, I've got huge concerns about the unintended consequences well, of lockdown. We're all concerned about that. The thing about SAGE and the projections was they did say they were putting forward a worst-case scenario. They didn't say it was going to happen. And they did have good reason at the time on the, on the available evidence for putting forward that worst-case scenario. The general point about lockdown, but the first point is Boris Johnson uh, is, is not a very credible source because he said in the past that he doesn't want to do more lockdowns or he says... He doesn't believe he's going to have to do them. He just undermines himself every time he changes his mind. But leaving Johnson's unreliability aside, the problem with the whole thing, and I've just recorded two podcasts on this exact issue, the, the ethical issues, is we have several conflicting principles and there's no overarching way to resolve the conflict. So we have do no harm. That's the basic principle of medical ethics. Clearly, lockdowns militate in favour of that principle because people might otherwise die in large numbers, NHS might be overwhelmed. But as you also imply, this is where it gets difficult, uh, personal autonomy with respect to your own decisions, uh, all the, the problems of those um, who are worst impacted by the lockdown, children, the dying, the elderly, people who couldn't go to church or mosque, all these... Of course, these are enormous costs. And so I think Boris, is at, Boris Johnson's actually right not to rule it out. Uh, shame he didn't say that before. But we all know there are enormous costs whichever way we look and a lot of, a lot of factual uncertainties. Uh, I mean, doctors, of course, make pronouncements on health. They don't make pronouncements on values, and people sometimes uh, mistakenly think they do. But we all have to make judgments about values. To what is, how do we balance public health versus uh, against individual liberty? There's simply no easy way to do it. But I actually yeah, okay. would, I but, would even push back on what you're saying, though, Piers, because you're saying about public health versus individual liberty, and you're saying about do no harm. I would say that lockdowns 
contradicted yeah, that do no harm thing. So to me, well, I'm not against lockdown just because of a personal liberty. I'm against lockdown because the, all lockdowns do is focus on COVID deaths as a single oh, entity. Well, Suicides, mental yeah. health, yeah. Uh, sure, sure. I, I economy agree. decimation. There's so many reasons. Well, I agree with that, but the principle I should be <clears throat> maybe I should be, didn't put it very well. I mean, it's not just do no harm; it's do no net harm. So we agree that you know surgery does harm. It might harm. It might kill the patient, but it's likely to do a net good. The debate about COVID was not whether lockdowns caused any harm, because of course they do. It's about the net balance. You know, the lives that might have been saved, uh, the NHS that might have been saved. I mean, these are all empirical disputes with no easy answers. There was a terrible polarisation got going in the early lockdown, which I didn't like at all, because each side seemed to think that the factual considerations they brought to their case were the, deter the morally determinating factors, and no argument or argument was very rarely made on either side for that conclusion. Can I say, just say one thing, actually? The, the likelihood of something like this being followed as well, just on a real politic level, yeah. is almost nil, simply because the Prime Minister himself and many of his friends, you know, had parties and what have you. Now, whatever you think about lockdowns, just purely on that level alone, how on earth is he going to get people to go along with it? Quite yeah. rightly. You could say, um, on the one hand, it's hypocrisy, um, but on the other hand, you could actually say, well, which I tend to believe is they didn't really think those rules were necessary. That's why they did it. I mean, there are, it's not just simply they feel, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't apply to us. At one particular level, they sort of thought, actually, you know, we're doing this, but, you know, it's not really necessary. That's far more alarming, actually, when you, when you look what the country went through. Mm, I mm. Lots of you guys. Again, a bit of a split response here. Um, lots of you saying, never again, you wouldn't adhere to it. Some of you are actually saying to Jonathan's point, actually, that if that's what it takes to save lives, then that's what we need to do. Uh, Nigel has written in saying, Michelle, you're lovely, but you're so <laughs> right-wing. Uh, he goes on to say, there's a question, because uh, I was saying I don't see the problem with the non-DOM thing, for example. He says it's not about non-DOM, it's about trust and values. That's what you say. Nigel, I found this whole concept, by the way, of what's right-wing, what's left-wing, I find it fascinating. Do let me know what you mean uh, by right-wing. Edwin has emailed in as well, uh, saying about the whole uh, green card, he's saying green card suggests lack of commitment to Britain. You go on to say about the non-dom, Sunak's wife is basically evading tax. I do have to say, Edwin, uh, evading tax, tax ev uh, evasion is illegal. Uh, tax avoidance, of course, isn't. Uh, and being a non-dom, it's not illegal. Uh, so I did just want to respond to you on that point. Going to take a quick break, though. When we come back, I want to talk to you about... Oh, we're not. So I was going to go to a quick break at minute so I could have a cup of tea, but we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about housing instead. Are you looking to buy a house at the moment? If you are, uh, you might have noticed that the prices have gone sky high. Good news, by the way, if you're selling one, but, as I said, less so if you are trying to get on the ladder or buy one. In Canada, the reason I'm discussing this is because in Canada, uh, what they're looking to do is come up with a scheme that would basically mean that foreign buyers wouldn't be able to buy property in Canada. I found that quite interesting because uh, in this country, there are lots of foreign ownership of properties here. And especially, for example, if you go around London or some of the other big cities, you can't help but notice a lot of properties uh, with the lights permanently off. You might be sitting there going, well, why does that affect me? Well, it affects, it affects all of us because 
If these properties, uh, often at the top of the housing ladder, let's be realistic, are being bought by foreign owners at uh, inflated prices, that will have a trickle-down uh, effect to the prices that the rest of us are paying for our properties. Um, Piers, what do you think to this? Do you think that uh, a foreign owner should be able to buy a property in the UK? Uh, do you think that it's inflating the prices? Uh, do you think it's unfair? Do you think we should look to uh, explore what Canada's exploring, which is foreign buyers, you can't buy property in this country? It's a difficult one. I, I can't see that any absolute principle is at stake here. Uh, yes, of course, to your general question, should foreigners be allowed to buy property in Britain? Well, yes, of course, why not? Um, should they be uh, given a right to buy property or should there be any restriction on who could buy property? Possibly. And there is a problem with, um, you know, very rich people inflating house prices, um, driving local residents out, people who can't buy in their own area, the areas they knew, and also uh, when they grew up, and also the risk of, uh, of social disharmony, if you like, from this happening. So um, just as we place limits on who can come to live in the country, and nobody, not many people object to that in principle, so we might possibly place limits on who can buy property in the country, but we have to be flexible about it too. I, I don't see... There are, of course, there are problems, uh, I mean, in France and Italy, many locals complained that house prices were going up when a lot of British people were buying second homes in the Dordogne or in Tuscany. Uh, we have to be sensitive to, to the social effects of it. But I don't see any absolute principles involved, so sorry. Peter? <laughs> um, it's a, a funny one. There's, when, when we were talking about, you know, in, investment, uh, foreign investment in property, and you mentioned London, and you say you go through some of these areas where the lights are out and they're empty... Literally nobody's home. Uh, yes, Knightsbridge, South Kensington, very, very rich places. For the majority of people, and this has been something which just simply has not been faced by our political class for a long time, they keep talking about building houses, they keep talking about the problem with house prices and all the rest of it. What they don't do is talk about the uh, uh, demand side of it, i.e. that you cannot deal with this situation unless you get a proper grip on immigration. It's as simple as that, you know. By focusing on the investment side of things, you're talking about a particular part of the market, and it rather deflects. Um, the fact is, is that... You know, I'm not. I'm talking about the whole... Uh, the, right. Well, if the look, prices if you take the, the whole top go up, yeah. that trickles down all the way down. Well, no, because, you see, it's a, it's a different dynamic. The fact is, if you have, in this country, as we do, now between 250 to 300,000 people coming a year, right, I'm not talking about refugees now, I'm talking about economic migrants, you know, that is going to have a major effect on housing. And yet, you know, when I was on the London Assembly, this would come up time and time again. Somehow, we had to be blind when it actually came to this side of the argument, which, of course, to me, seems to be one of the main dynamics behind it. But I'm not sure I get that, because... An economic migrant, let's just let's be blunt yeah. about what you're talking about. You're probably talking about people that are crossing the channel and all the rest of it, yeah? Am no, I right? no, no, not necessarily, no. I mean, what it is is that this country used to have, what, 50,000 uh, net mi migration a year, uh, right up until the mid-'90s. Uh, now it's, it's at unprecedented levels. It's become the new normal, even whether people like it or not. That's going to have an effect on things like housing, not just social services, but housing. Mm. You know, if... If this is obvious, it's not rocket science. You know? mm. and, mm. and so, therefore, you have got to look at that too. Will anyone sort of grab that? No, they won't. They won't. They, they will sort of, politicians will stay right away from it. But you're not going to make any progress on this front unless you also look at immigration. 
Mm. Yeah, uh, the average how, uh, UK house price, by the way, £276.91. Jonathan, what's your thoughts on all this? Well, I think it's uh, too easy just to blame it all on immigration and foreigners and coming in, foreigners buying or foreigners coming to this country. The real problem in housing in this country is that young first-time buyers don't have affordable housing. And the, the main problem is the councils in this country, too many of them are not building council houses properly or council flats. They're developing other things, using the money in other ways. And private developers who, under various legislation, are supposed to have a certain percentage of the flats in their buildings available to first-time buyers at affordable prices are not doing that. They, they rather will sell to luxury buyers or upper-middle-class people than poorer ones. So we have this danger of ghettoization in London where increasingly you get Chelsea and Knightsbridge on the one hand and you get poorer boroughs on the other who are completely separated. And we go back to... I think you, as one of the British politicians said, we've had a, had a sort of Sarkozy, attacking Sarkozy, saying we would be like Paris, becoming a city of, you know, really split entities and areas altogether and slums here and high-rise luxury apartments overlooking the river there. We should do something about our local councils and their attitudes rather than worrying about foreigners coming in who are not the real problem, in my view. Mm, what do you think to that? And by the way, I do think Jonathan uh, comes up with an interesting point. If I can get it on the screen, I'll just show you a quick graph, actually. Um, because affordability, I mean, OK, I was going to show you that graph on the screen, but if you can see that, you've got better eyesight than me, even with my glasses on there, because it's quite small. Uh, but in a nutshell, I mean, look, the average property now costs nearly eight times that of the average salary. Eight times, I mean... I'm showing my age now, but I remember the days where you could only borrow, I think it was like three times <laughs> your salary. Um, I remember that. But, yeah. that. but that's what I mean. Yeah. So I, I kind of think, you know, so let's have a look now. So in 2020, average work-based earnings are nearly £32,000, right? That's in 2020. And if I look, the average house price is nearly 250 mm. grand. Mm. I mean... Yeah. Uh, the, the point you make, Jonathan, is a good one in terms of affordability. I just... And obviously there's a disconnect between London and the rest of the country. Yeah. Yeah. But I just... Let me know, by the way, if you're a first-time buyer and you're trying to get onto the housing ladder, how do you manage? How are you doing that? Especially if you're someone that doesn't have a family that can help you with a deposit. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, no, just... Uh, the other thing as well, this, this uh, phrase, affordable housing, affordable... Do you know that it's a kind of moving definition of this, but I think it's sort of something like two-thirds of the, of the market price makes it affordable or something. I mean, this is sort of fantasy land stuff. I think, obviously, we need more housing. But at the same time, I don't want to see a wonderful green belt being built right over, go anywhere in the country, huge sprawling estates taking root. I mean, you know, the fact is you have to look as well on the numbers of people coming into the country and how that affects house, housing and house prices. It just seems to be completely yeah. obvious to me. And also rent. I mean, the yes, cost of rent is a very big problem. I know a lot of millennials, people in their late 20s, 30s, who, uh, you know, when I was that age, uh, buying was relatively easy. It, it really isn't for them, and I feel sorry for them. They're stuck with their parents, not that some parents are very nice and so on, but they, they can't move on, difficult to have relationships, it's difficult to save. Uh, 
it's not a violation of their rights. It's just a very unfortunate situation to be in. Indeed. Well, let me know your thoughts on how do we fix uh, the situation with the housing prices in this country. Uh, Nigel, the guy that emailed in, said that I was lovely but very right-wing, has emailed in again to say, <laughs> I'm sorry if I offended you. You didn't offend me at all, Nigel. It's very hard, it's very hard work to try and offend me. I just think your point is a very interesting one. Now, according to Citizens Advice, customer service standards at UK energy providers have fallen to their worst levels since 2017. This coincides with soaring energy bills, of course. Uh, the charity's research basically found that there's been a drop in customer service across the board. You are not telling me, uh, Jonathan, that I blame it on uh, companies using COVID as an excuse. They have less staff on. They have these stupid recorded messages saying, oh, due to unprecedented demand, come off it. You know what your demand is. Make sure you staff your business accordingly. Am I wrong? You're absolutely right. Of course, that's no excuse. COVID's no excuse. But the trouble with these calls is that they don't tell you how many people in front of you there are. That's the crucial thing about waiting. If you're told you're second in the queue, you'll carry on waiting. If you're told you're 15th in the queue, you probably won't. So there should be a requirement that these customer service announcements don't just put on terrible music while you wait and wait and wait and yeah. no idea how long it's going to be. They should be required in some way to give you an estimated wait time. To, to say you are third or fifth or tenth or twentieth in the queue. Mm. Piers? Well, I've had different experiences. I imagine that <clears throat> a lot of this is anecdotal. I've had quite good experiences with certain things I've ordered online. I've had very prompt and efficient and polite delivery people bringing packets of things that I've, I've, I've ordered. I've also had the queue problem. I'm reminded of a, of a cartoon that's doing the rounds on social media recently where a voice says, uh, your calls are important to us. Please wait long. Please wait until yeah. your calls no longer important to you. And yeah. that, is, <laughs> and that, that I think <laughs> sums up quite a lot of what, what is the problem. Sometimes it's a kind, of, it's a kind of structural inefficiency. It's nobody's fault in particular. You have a feeling there are underpaid people on zero hours contracts, grudgingly doing this, and, and systems that have been upgraded. And I tried to phone a hospital to inquire about a patient a few weeks ago. I had to do rounds. I got taken to lost property. I got taken back to the ward. I mean, it's all complete. That was annoying. And if, I, if this person had been very ill, I'd been very, very angry. So I suspect you know, people have different anecdotes. Whether COVID's a reason, I just don't know. Uh, it's not an excuse, but I imagine it made it difficult to recruit enough people to these centres. Mm, indeed, Peter? Uh, yeah, I, I suppose, uh, on, a, on a, again, anecdotal level, my own experience, <laughs> Uh, in retail, you know, like going into shops, things like that, cafes. Um, I, I would say that, look, over the past couple of years, people have had the stuffing knocked out of them, right? They really have by this thing. And uh, so I do detect a kind of lethargy in people, um, a, a sort of tiredness, you know, um, which I'm not blaming them for. Um, and therefore, that does absolutely affect things like customer service. It just does. Well, Scott, uh, you've just messaged in about companies that still write letters. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, what a strange thing to do in 2022. Uh, you know, why not just email or pick up the telephone? Uh, of course not. They can't pick up the telephone because they don't have the staff. Um, right, so that is pretty much all we've got time for. I can tell you now, I've created quite a debate on the email about what's right-wing and what's left-wing. Maybe we should do that as a, a debate one day. Are these kind of labels still relevant in this day and age? Jill has just emailed in saying she's made my mum's chicken pie recipe that I shared with you the other day and she loved it. Good for you guys. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for. Uh, Peter, Piers, Jonathan, thank right. you for thank your you. company tonight. Mm -hmm. Thank you at home.
Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. Thank you.